All right, well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, as we continue our series entitled, The Kingdom of Heaven. And as we had stated in times past, we have embarked upon this particular series in lieu of all of the events that have transpired over this year. Of course, living in the United States of America, we have exhausted the discussion of politics and citizenship here in the United States of America and what that means. But now we must remember that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But yet often we forget what that means. And we certainly then for, therefore forget what that looks like. And so as Jesus began his earthly ministry, we discover that his first words were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the first coming of Jesus Christ, he inaugurated the coming of the kingdom, which will be fully established in Revelation chapter 20 after his second coming. It's a period of time called the millennial kingdom. But until then, the kingdom of God does exist here on this earth. And each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ will understand that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Then comes our citizenship and our allegiance to our country and our nation, etc. and so forth. One of the aspects of the New Testament that is very clear to me is that the followers of Jesus Christ had a very different perspective of their world than we do of our our world today. And that is because they saw themselves as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. They saw themselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and recorded throughout the Gospels, specifically that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew wanted to reach his Jewish brethren and help them realize what the kingdom of heaven would look like here on this earth. And as a result, it allowed them to rediscover what it meant to be an individual of the kingdom of heaven. Now, why do I say it like that? I say it like that because they had a distorted understanding of what the kingdom of heaven was going to look like. They had been promised by the religious leaders over and over and over again that when Messiah came, he would return in glory and that he would reestablish the nation of Israel to the zenith it once experienced under the reign of King David. And yet, when Jesus came as the true Messiah and began to announce the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, it didn't fit the profile that the religious leaders had laid down for so many decades and centuries prior that the populace of Israel was confused, to say the least. This helps us to understand why the disciples continuously had that conversation with Jesus presumptuously, of who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Debating on who would sit at his right hand. In fact, even in, uh, recruiting um, uh, one on their behalf, one who they thought that Jesus could not uh, refuse, and that was their mom. Their mom got involved and started asking on behalf of her sons. 
who would be the greatest in heaven. It also gives us, uh, in the kingdom, excuse me, and then it also gives us understanding and insight that when you come to Acts chapter 1, why the disciples asked the question that they did. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first question that they ask is, now will your kingdom be established? This is all due to the distortion that the religious leaders had laid out when, uh, as they uh, incorrectly laid out a profile of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is now. But it is amongst the kingdoms of this world. And right now, as we are integrated and as we are part of this world, you and I, though we are part of the United States of America, God sees us as individuals in the kingdom of God already. Therefore, seeing us as citizens and seeing us as individuals who should be responsible for being ambassadors unto a fallen world. When you start thinking about it in this light, I think our responsibility becomes even greater to our understanding of what that means and what that requires and what that looks like. And Jesus addressed one of the very first questions that he could anticipate his listeners asking, and we find this in verse 20 of chapter 5. And that is, what must one do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus shocked each and every one of his listeners by stating this fact. And let's read it together. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. This would have stopped people in their tracks. Every person who possibly was looking at their cell phone when Jesus was saying this, would have looked up, would have immediately tweeted, he said what? Because the religious leaders were the standard of righteousness in that culture. They, by all means, would have not only entered into the kingdom of God, but they would have played a large role of prominence within it. And yet Jesus says, and he uses the word in Greek uh, to say, unless you supremely exceed it, meaning vastly exceed it, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And each and every person sitting there knew that that was an impossibility. For no one could keep the law and therefore obtain righteousness more profoundly than the religious leaders of that day. But then Jesus said something else. As he concludes chapter 5, after redefining what righteousness is in, this ver- in these various examples that we have looked at together, in verse 48 he then says, in, for one who acts in the righteousness in which he prescribes, in verse 48 he says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus was establishing what's called an impossibility knowing that his listeners would realize very quickly that perfection was in they were incapable of obtaining perfection he was therefore showing and demonstrating to the hearts and the minds of the individual that they needed something more well in fact that they needed a savior and that savior could only be found in him 
Now, three ways that the religious leaders showed their piety, their righteousness, was through giving, through prayers, and through fasting. And these were the three prescribed manners in which one could demonstrate and show that they had not only earned God's favor, but had earned their right into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus addresses each and every one by showing and demonstrating, yes, you should give, but give unto the Father, give unto eternity, so you may store for your treasure, yourselves treasures in heaven and not here on this earth. And then when he talks about praying, he says, pray unto the Father in a secret place, that he who hears you secretly may uh, reward you openly, rather than, again, displaying your piety for all of the populace to see, and of not establishing true righteousness, but establishing self-righteousness among them all. But this morning we come to fasting. And I think that over the last 23 years, fasting has been one of the questions that I have been asked about the most as a prescribed Christian practice for today. Should Christians fast today? The answer to that question is yes. Unfortunately, many Christians don't understand the reason why we fast, how we fast, and why God has called us to fast. And I hope to demonstrate this morning to you that the fasting that we see in the Old Testament is not as the same as the fasting that we see in the New Testament. We fast for different reasons in the New Testament than they did in the Old Testament, and I'll show you why. But let us begin by reading our text. As we make our way through Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, we find ourselves in verse 16. And as Jesus addresses the third example, he says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces and they, that they may appear to men to be fasting. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The same three elements are found again in this example. Number one, he expected his followers to fast. When you fast. It's not if you fast, it's when you fast. So it is something prescribed for the Christian today. One who follows Jesus Christ should practice fasting. But knowing what fasting is all about and understanding it properly will help you fast as a Christian. Most that I speak to today when I talk about fasting or when they talk about fasting, they really don't know what it means and they don't understand why they're doing it. And I've had some pretty uh, amazing things told to me, uh, reasons why people feel fasting is necessary. You know, one told me this, well, I fast so I may gain God's attention and that he may grant me further favor in listening and answering my prayers. Another one said to me, I want to make my prayers louder to God, so I fast, so that God 
may hear them more clearly. The third one was my personal favorite. Well, I'm fasting intermittently for weight loss, so I might as well pray at the same time. If this was a game show, all three of those would lose with leaving the show with nothing. All three of those answers are wrong and are unbiblical. First, as a Christian in Christ, all the favor of God and all the attention that He has is already yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, do, you don't have to do anything to earn His attention. You don't have to do anything more to earn His favor, His grace towards you. All of that has been established in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as far as I know, as God ages, ages, and He doesn't actually age, I'm saying that facetiously, He is not losing His hearing, unlike others of us. And therefore, we do not need to uh, pray with fasting to simply make our prayers louder so God can hear them. We don't come to the throne room of God amongst everybody else and God says, now wait, 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 just settle down, just settle down, Autumn, I'll get to you as soon as I can. I'm already dealing with your dad. Just wait a minute, you know. God doesn't work that way. And if we think uh, we are fasting and losing weight and also praying at the exact same time, well, I don't even know what to say to you theologically. Physical exercise profits a little? (laughs) I don't know. But what is fasting then? Why should we do it as Christians? As I said, the religious leaders believed that fasting was one of the three elements that allowed them to show their personal righteousness before others. And the way Jesus gives us the example here is that they made a spectacle of themselves. That they contorted their face. They made their face look, you know, grimsome to attract notice from the people who were around them. They put on a show for people that people may know that they are fasting. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's ridiculous. And he said, in fact, just do the opposite. Don't allow anyone to know that you are fasting, except your Father who is in heaven. And, you know, anoint yourself, make up yourself, take a shower that day, and go out amongst the business and fast unto your Heavenly Father. But what is fasting? We find that throughout the New Testament, God absolutely expects Christians to fast. But fasting is not about food. Let, it, let us make it abundantly clear from the beginning. Food is the major source of denial throughout the Bible that when fasting is talked about in the New Testament, it is talking about abstaining from food. And I don't want to get into the debate if other aspects such as sleep, uh, such as individual things, you know, uh, such as chocolate. I've had a person tell me that they were fasting from chocolate uh, to show and to demonstrate their self-denial. Um, I don't want to get into those theological debates because I don't agree with them and they don't like to hear that. I believe that fasting is so much superior than that in the New Testament. And it means so much more 
that almost when we ask those particular questions and we reduce it to the, um, the reduction of you know, saying we fast from chocolate to demonstrate our self-denial before God, we are almost trivializing what fasting truly is. It's not about what you are fasting from, but actually about what you are fasting to. It is about devotion and consecration unto the Lord. That's what fasting is. But there's a difference between the manner in which individuals fasted in the Old Testament and the reason why they did, and the reason why individuals in the New Testament fasted and prayed. And we're going to show you in just a moment why Jesus changed the context of fasting. And it's right there before us in the Gospels, but I think we miss it. I think we miss it. But let me begin by helping you understand Old Testament fasting. Old Testament fasting actually was only prescribed to the Jewish people for one day out of the year, and that was during the Day of Atonement. Individual days of fasting came about later, but they weren't prescribed by the law, but by the religious leaders of that time, okay? But fasting in and of itself was only prescribed for one particular day, the Day of Atonement. And when fasting in the Old Testament is uh, discussed or demonstrated, it is accompanied by two characteristics. Number one, the denying of self. And number two, the, uh, humble, the, the um, humbling of your soul before God. When we see an individual practice such as fasting in the Old Testament like that, think of it this way. We are looking at one picture of a a microcosm of a macro narrative. Okay, let me say that again. We are looking at a microcosm of a macro narrative. The Jewish people of Israel in the Old Testament interacted with God under the covenant of Moses, didn't they? Okay. The covenant of Moses required their personal commitment and responsibility. For God clearly stated within the covenant in, Je- in chapters 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy, if you do these things, I will bless you. If you do not do these things, I will curse you. Doesn't he say that very clearly? When we see fasting in the Old Testament, do you notice that it's often, if not always, accompanied with sackcloth and ashes, which is an outward display of repentance and comes in the wake of the disobedience of the children of Israel to the covenant in which they agreed to keep with God. Okay? So the fasting is asking for repentance, it's asking for healing, it's asking for reconciliation, and it's asking to be spared the consequences leveled against those who would be disobedient and the nation for their disobedience that God had prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 29, right? So it was a very sad, solemn, sober moment where people were pleading with God in repentance. Now, we find that in verses such as Psalm 35, 13. Let me read it for you. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing's 
was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart, the psalmist writes. In Isaiah 58.3, which we'll talk about more in a moment, the people ask God, Why have we fasted, they say? You have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls? You have not taken notice. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all the laborers. So they adamantly were trying to gain God's attention, clearly in those verses. They were trying to repent. They were trying to humble themselves before the Lord because of the weight of the Mosaic Covenant upon all of them. As one commentator wrote, he said, Fasting in the Old Testament was associated with three things. Sorrow for, de- uh, for the, a deceased person, number one. Number two, uh, mourning to be uh, mollified, to mollify the wrath of God and to advert calamity, meaning to avoid it. And number three, the petition of God after one has wronged him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we operate as a Christian under the Old Testament covenant that was established with Moses? No. We operate with God under the new covenant established with Christ. And I believe that Jesus changed the context of fasting in Mark chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, if you turn there. Mark chapter 2, 19 through 22. I know you've read this passage, but I think we've missed the true implication of what he was saying about the practice of fasting in the New Covenant. For example, I do not have to petition God through fasting over the sorrow of someone who has died in Christ, do I? No. For doesn't Paul say, do not sour like those who have no hope? I do not have to fast to mollify the wrath of God and avert calamity, do I? No, because the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ on the cross on my behalf, right? I do not fear the wrath of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is the wrath of the punishment of sin. God does not pour his wrath upon his children. What he does for his children who may be struggling with sin is chasten them correct them because he loves them too much to leave them the way he found them okay there's a difference and number three i don't have to fast to petition god because my mediator has the ear of god the father all the time right jesus christ so the fasting of the old testament cannot be our model in fact, I can, I'll further uh, 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 support this with old, an Old Testament passage in just a moment. But Jesus said something in Mark chapter 2 that I think is unique. When he was asked about fasting, we'll read it together, starting in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And then he says something interesting. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and tear the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts with wineskins, bursts the wineskin, excuse me, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into a new wineskin. Often when I've heard that passage taught by people, with all the good intentions in the world, they talk about, well, while Jesus was with them, there was no need for them to fast, but as soon as he uh, departs, then we will have to fast again. And the definition of that idea of fasting is the Old Testament idea of fasting. That they don't have to do uh, that Old Testament style of fasting when the bridegroom is with us, but we'll have to return to it after the, bride, the bridegroom leaves, speaking of Jesus. But is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think that's what he's saying at all here. I think Jesus is changing the entire context of fasting from one of sorrow to one of joy. Why do I believe that? Because he is creating a context using the example of a wedding. Wow, does this fit into New Testament theology? Are we called the bride of Christ? Is Jesus showing us through this demonstration that the new covenant is superior to that of the old covenant? Does he not talk about the new and old wineskin and the new wine being placed in a new wineskin? Meaning that we are not going to do things the same way under the new covenant. Even when the bridegroom left, fasting still would, in, would be in the context of joy rather than the context of sorrow. And I'm going to demonstrate it and illustrate for you what I believe that looks like. Yes, I believe we're called to fast, but not the type of fasting found in the Old Testament under the guidelines of the Mosaic Covenant. We are to fast from a position of joy and love rather than of sorrow and fear. Now, already I think I've established a much stronger motivator for fasting than they had in the... Well, fear can be a huge motivator, can't it? Fear is unfortunately dominating and controlling too many people today. But I believe a superior motivator is love. Is love. For the Bible says that it will be love that will allow us to lay down our life on behalf of another. Not fear, but love. I believe Jesus was changing the whole entire context. I believe Jesus fully understood their concept of fasting and said, no, it's not. It's going to be completely different. And even when the bridegroom leaves, the fasting is going to be in a context of joy, it is going to be in the context of love, and it's going to be in the context of hope compared to that of the Old Testament. 
And even in the absence of the bridegroom, that context will still remain. He says this, that Jesus explains his unwillingness to fast with a wedding analogy. Weddings were marked by music, laughter, feasting, and merrymaking. And anyone fasting at a wedding called attention to oneself and would be a, uh, be a grievous affront to the host in the idea of fasting of the Old Testament. Jesus' reduction of fasting here is related to the joy, celebration, and hope that is present in the kingdom of God and should excite people. Wow, what a different idea of fasting. So what does that look like to you and I today? Let me give you some illustrations. And within these illustrations, I'm not trying to display one of the participants as being God and the other participants being us, but I'm trying to show you the motive for fasting. And the first illustration I'd like to share with you happened with my wife and I while we were dating. When we were dating, one of our dates was, ext- was just extraordinary and so memorable that I'll never forget it. As her and I were getting to know each other in our dating, when we had an opportunity, we went out to dinner together someplace. And as we were sitting there, we were talking with each other so intently. And I was so engrossed in every word she was saying and vice versa. And we were talking back and forth and we were just enamored with one another. And the waitress came, kept coming back over and over again. Would you like to order? Would you like to order? Oh, we haven't even gotten to the menus yet, you know. And we kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. And the whole purpose of for us being there was us talking, not eating. Because we were falling in love with each other. And we kept talking. And then we finally did order. And then the food came. And we guess what? We kept talking. And the food sat there before us. And we kept talking and talking and talking. The food finally got cold. And we ended up taking it home in, do- in doggy bags. To me, that is the idea of fasting that I have when it comes to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love him so much that food is just irrelevant. I'm just going to spend time with him and talk with him. I'm going to designate this time and I'm just going to spend time with him. I'm going to be so engrossed in him. The food doesn't matter. I don't have to petition his favor. I have it in Christ. I don't have to beg for his forgiveness. He offers it willingly, right? As John wrote to Christians, he says, if we confess our sins, he's uh, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't have to yell for God to hear me. God knows me so intimately and personally that every hair that I once had on my head was numbered. You'll have to imagine that. And every tear I've ever cried is in a bottle. I don't have to yell to God. But because I'm falling in love with him and because I love him so much, fasting just becomes a natural practice. But there are times where it's out of desperate need too. And I think of that scenario of the spouse who will not leave the side of his or her spouse's 
hospital bed because of their love for one another. I'm not going to leave them. But you have to eat. I'm not leaving. I will sit here with her as long as it takes. I am not going to leave her side. And sometimes when we're in positions of desperation, we just need to sit with the Lord and just wait on Him. But I do so not because of fear. I do so because I love my spouse. And I will sit there and I will hold her hand and I will wait with her every single moment. I will walk with her through the tough times. I will be with her at the good moments. I am not going to leave her side. This is the type of fasting. This is the motivation. This is the heart behind the fasting as Christians that I believe God prescribes for you and I. Doesn't James say, you know, draw near to God and He shall draw near to you? The petitions of those in the Old Testament were under a different covenant altogether than from you and I who are in Christ. Remember, from the very beginning, it was God's desire that we would love Him. And that love for Him would move us and motivate us to obey Him and to follow Him and to walk with Him. And in and and through the new covenant, that love has been demonstrated. So now we love Him because He first loved us. To me, this is a completely different picture of Christianity. And so when I fast, either it being out of a a, a desperate situation or it being out of a, a moment of love, and notice, if you will, that throughout the New Testament, It is always fasting and prayer that is meant hand in hand. One person said that you really truly can't fast if you don't pray. I'll tell you, when I read about Cornelius in the book of Acts, spending hours with the Lord, and then the Lord meeting him there with that angel, instructing him to go and send for Peter to hear the gospel message. Cornelius was just spending time with God because he loved God. As we find, as we continue on in the New Testament and prayer and fasting is put together, it is always setting aside time to spend with the Lord. It's not about the food in which we uh, forsake. It is about the God in whom we embrace. That's what fasting is all about. I do get concern. And one reason we haven't done this at our church is prescribed a week of fasting and prayer. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, asking for your congregation to fast and pray as long as they know what fasting is truly about. But unfortunately, I have found many believing that because they have fasted and prayed, that God is going to do something more because they did fast and pray. That gets into very gray territory for me. Hey, God, I I didn't eat for seven whole days. Will you do what I want you to do now? That gets into very questionable theological territory, doesn't it? You know, Anyone who has had, who's a parent and has had a child realizes this, that they can be good for seven days, can't they? 
It's the eighth day that you question. I've been good all week. And that's why I think Santa has just lowered the bar too much when he says, have you been good all year? I think he should be saying, have you been good for the last decade? Every single day? Nothing for you. See, I don't think, I I have a very difficult time theologically seeing God working like that. Because God sees me through Christ, doesn't he? Christ was perfect and is perfect. And therefore, I can't gain any further favor. I can't gain any further grace. And I've also noticed that God often blesses us when we deserve it the least, doesn't he? So to go into fasting and thinking, okay, I'm going to fast now because I want to provoke God to do what I want Him to do. No. I think that's a wrong motivator. I'd, I'd really urge you to question that thinking. But if you want to fast to get to know your God, if you want to fast to hold on to His hand because you are in a desperate situation and you need His strength, His ability, He will always be there for you. If you just need to be reminded of his love and set time aside to say, Lord, I just need to know about your love again. Spend time in the word and just just get into that conversation with him in prayer. Just like Dean and I over that and the waitress kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. It didn't matter. The things of this world didn't matter. It was all about spending time with the one in whom I loved. I will say that that was one of the greatest foundational stones for my marriage with Dina. To this day, 26 years later, we talk probably more to one another than anyone else. And we look forward to it all day. We have two couches in our living room. One is short, one is longer. You can understand who gets which one. And we just talk for hours and hours and hours about different things. And I've gotten to know her so much more, and as a result of knowing her so much more, I love her that much more. That's the idea that I believe Jesus was putting forward in his example. And the reason I believe that so strongly is by the way he concluded that illustration. By talking about the new wine and the old wineskins, and vice versa. And not doing that. We're going to do a new thing in a new way. The context isn't going to be the despair of fear and desperation under the Mosaic law because we understand that that cannot be kept. But in the new covenant with Christ, we are in a marriage scenario, aren't we? And the foundation of that scenario is love. As James also wrote, he said, the law of Moses has been replaced with the royal law of love predicated on two simple, profoundly complex commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of Christianity. So when you fast, fast. But it's not what you're fasting from, it's who you're fasting to, if I may say it that way. And do it out of a heart of love regardless of what the circumstances are that may move you to that moment. 
if it, either being falling in love with him in a deeper way in your relationship with him or just needing to hold his hand as you go through a dark time in life, understand that the covenant that you have with Christ is a covenant of love. Let, let me read this, if I may, in closing. The point of fasting is to submit ourselves to God in such a way that we personally sacrifice something to Him. It is not a matter of working to gain His attention. It is instead a proclamation of love and dedication to Him. Our Savior, our Lord. Done with the proper attitude, fasting is a sure means of drawing closer to the Lord. There are different ways to fast. Those who struggle with certain physical problems may not be able to give up food intake. Therefore, traditional fasting could provide, pr- prove difficult. However, there are other ways a person can fast, giving time or money or some other personal item that could consist of a type of fast. The benefits of fasting includes a purified mind, heart, and body. Jesus fasted and prayed, but away from his eyes, of his followers. God wants fasting to remain a personal commitment between you and the Lord. Not every time you will fast will there be a need for self-examination. Yet God often uses fasting to teach us, to teach you how to submit in entirety your life to him. Through fasting, he may direct you to ask for his wisdom concerning a certain situation. But be assured of this, that fasting will always lead you to a deeper love relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not what we fast from. It's what we fast to that matters. This is what Isaiah hoped for. And let me assign this to you for homework. There will be a test next week. Isaiah chapter 58. In the chapter, the people come before God and say, God, haven't we fasted? And yet you appear not to hear. And then he prescribes and shows them and teaches them the type of fasting that he's actually looking for. And let me know if it isn't what we described today. Isaiah chapter 58. I believe love is the greatest motivator that any Christian can have for following Jesus Christ. And we have to keep reiterating that time and time again. It's our love for Him that will overcome our love for the world. It's our love for Him that will overcome our love for sin. It's our love for Him that will allow us to overcome the love of the self-serving pleasures of our, our flesh. It's our love for Him that will take us into a new depth of dynamic in our intimate relationship with Him. A love built on righteousness and purity and holiness. A love demonstrated through self-sacrifice as God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not die but have everlasting life. I can't reiterate that enough. But when it comes to fasting, I believe fasting should be a derivative of the love that we have for God in whatever form it takes. And I pray that you will consider fasting, but do so in the covenant in which God has made with you through Christ and let it be out of a heart of love.